0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome, everyone. So we're now in the thick of our study, this eight-week study of the Buddhist teachings on anatta, the not-self-characteristic. As it's sometimes called. One, uh, I don't think I read this last week. Tonight we'll be talking about the aggregates, which is a, ma- a map the Buddha used to talk about the activity of the mind and body, which is, you know, often he used this teaching the body being the five physical senses, the mind being made up of feeling, tone, perception, mental formations and intentions, and consciousness. And so that makes the five aggregates, body being one, and then those four aspects of mind, feeling, tone, perception, mental formations, consciousness. And often, most often, the five aggregates are synonymous with dukkha, suffering, because the mind clings to the activity, these five activities, right? The activity of the body and the mind, sees it, relates to it as me or mine, right? But we can study the five aggregates. So this is one way the Buddha suggests we study and this discourse, no essence to the aggregates. This is translated by Andy Olensky. This bodies like a bowl of foam. And feeling is like a bubble. Perception is like a mirage. Formations (coughs) like a pithless tree. And consciousness is like a trick. So says the kinsman of the sun, which is a phrase they used to refer to the Buddha. His clan evidently was the clan of the sun. However one reflects on them and carefully investigates, they are empty and deserted. Empty of self and deserted to one who sees them properly. Their lineage is only this. On nonsense babbling fantasy revealing itself a killer, no no essence is discovered here. It's a provocative statement. About what we call my life, you know this activity of the body and the mind, and this is not that unusual of a meditative experience when we get some stability of awareness, some settledness, minds concentrated, body settled, and we're with awareness of the breath, awareness of the whole body, awareness of hearing, awareness of you know, with open awareness of different phenomena coming and going. And it really does begin to make sense, a statement, a teaching like this, where the body does feel as ephemeral as a ball of foam. You know, like washed up on the beach, that kind of foam. It looks like it's substantial. But you pick it up, you know, it's not much of anything, those little bubbles making up the foam. And, um, Feeling tone, like when we have an ouch or a pleasant feeling, it feels so substantial, but it's gone. It doesn't really last. Perception like a mirage. And when we see somebody or recognize something, it has that momentary impact. Because the mirage is, it's not so much that experience, but all that that perception brings, you know, when we name something. You get this with nostalgic things sometimes, you know, like how impactful that is. You hear a song you haven't heard in a while that maybe, you know, brings you back or something like that. But So it feels like, you know, that moment of hearing that lyric or that little bit of melody, it feels so Rich and deep, and but it's like a mirage, you're not actually back in the day. <laughs> and then there's uh, formations like a pithless tree, I think referring to a banana like tree or plankton. You know, that if you peel back the stiff outer part, there's no hardwood underneath those kinds of trees, and um. I'm not exactly sure the life cycle of these banana-type tree, banana trees, but I think that trunk completely disappears every year. And then another one. Anybody from tropics who know about banana trees? I think that's the way it is. So the, it's not like that trunk, because they can be quite substantial, the trunks of banana trees, but they fall apart and they come back. And then consciousness like a trick. So tonight, um, you know, I thought we'd use the five aggregates to just get a better sense of how the Buddha suggests we relate to the present moment, this activity of the body and the mind. And there's this basic formula that the Buddha uses and... uh, It really comes, there's a, you know, as one of the stories talks about, you probably have heard the story of setting the wheel of Dhamma, Dharma, in motion in the legends and the stories. It's considered the first Dharma talk that the Buddha gave. And one of the five people he was teaching got it enough, so had stream entry, understood what the Buddha was pointing to when he was talking about the Four Noble Truths. And then a a few days later, he gave another talk on the not-self-characteristic. And that's often how it's translated, um, the discourse on the not-self-characteristic. And you might have heard this, but it's just sort of a formulaic way of paying attention. Form, practitioners, is not self. Form being the body, the five physical senses. Form is not self. If form were the self, this form would not lend itself to dis-ease. It would not be possible, it would be possible to say with regard to the body, to form, let this form be thus, let this form not be thus. But precisely because form is not self, form lends itself to dis-ease. We can't make it the way we want it to be. And it is not possible to say with regard to form, let this form be thus, let this form not be thus. And he goes on, he says the same thing about the feeling tone. And the same thing about perception, the same thing about mental formations, mental fabrications, and the same thing about consciousness, that it's not self. If consciousness were self, it would not lend itself to to disease. It would, not, it would be possible to say with regard to consciousness, let it be this way, let it not be that way, but we can't do that with any of these aspects of the body and the mind, the activities of the body and the mind. And then the Buddha says, what do you think, practitioners? Is the body, is feeling tone, is perception, mental formations, consciousness, are these activities of body mind constant, or inconstant? No, well, they understood. They paid attention. No, it's inconstant. And the Buddha says to them, and is that which is inconstant easeful or stressful? Stressful, they answered. And is it fitting to regard what is inconstant, stressful, subject to change, as this is mine, this is myself, This is what I am. No, sir, they answered. And he asked the same thing about feeling and perception and mental fabrications, mental formations, and consciousness. Is it, you know, again, that question, is it fitting, this is a question for us to ask as we're aware of our experience, is it fitting for me to regard this experience right now that each of us are having? Is it fitting for us to regard this experience that is, Inconstant. Stressful here means not fully satisfying a me, not capable of satisfying me. The sense of me, right? So this experience is it not true? It's inconstant. It's changing. Is this moment really completely fully doing it for any of you? so that you're so completely satisfied there's no more need for satisfaction for you no and hasn't this been the truth of all of our moments they ha- no moment i'm guessing presuming like me for you that there's never been a moment that completely sated completely satisfied the heart so the heart was done with craving because it got what it wanted. It was satisfied. So it's fair to say that this moment is a flow of mental and bodily activity and not satisfying the heart. Subject to change, right? So is it fitting to regard it as this is me or this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am? So what's the alternative? It's not dismissing it. It's understanding that, well, it's just what it is. It's this experience being known. So when I say, or the Buddha says, or other teachers might say, oh, it's nature and not self, that word nature, it's just a word. The important thing is to see it in a way that sets up the disenchantment Excuse me, the disenchantment, which just means not being enchanted, not imagining thing, something is more than what it is. Disillusionment, not being deluded, not being under the spell. And dispassion. Right? So not a, not fixated, not attached. So that's what that's what we're setting up. So the basic You know, thrust of the practice is we stabilize present moment awareness so we can take a close look at this. What is this? Oh, it's the activity of the body and the mind. However you divide it, five aggregates is just one way to divide it. You could divide it according to the six sense gates, right? Where the mind is just one, mental activity, and then the five physical senses. Those are the two basic ways. Five aggregates more often used to talk about the activity of the body and the mind. Okay, it's this stuff being known. Okay, what can I discern about this stuff being known? Well, that it's inconstant, not satisfying the heart, leaving the heart unsatisfied. Every single moment of my life, even the nice moments, because I couldn't grasp them and lock them in, Every moment of my life has been unsatisfactory. I'm hungry for the next experience, hoping, right? That characterizes, I think, us, you know, as, as, a, in a, as a sort of general description of human people, that we're unsatisfied. We're hungry, we're thirsting for that which will satisfy us, but never finding satisfaction. So, does it make sense, something that is in motion, not subject to my volition, not satisfying in any deep sense, changing, does it make sense to pretend or imagine or project that it's me or mine? So, when, when it dawns on the mind, no, it doesn't make sense. So that's the beginning of that process of disenchantment, disillusionment, dispassion, or what we call letting go, or what we call non attachment. Right? So the heart is releasing what isn't helpful, what isn't necessary. And then, and I thought we'll save some time at the end, um, but to talk about you know, to whatever degree and whatever place in our life, we've noticed some of that maturing of disenchantment, disillusionment, dispassion. Some of us, you know, um, have had a lot of relationships. And and how we related to a romantic or intimate relations when we were teenagers might be different than how we relate Those kind of relationships, decades down the road, right? Maybe a little more disenchantment, or maybe a little bit more disillusionment, or maybe a little bit more dispassion. Like that quote that I often bring up from um, Susan Piver about, you know, somebody asking her whether uh, she thought this relationship this person was in could work. And she said, of course it can work, as long as you don't expect it to make you happy. Right? That's that disenchantment, disillusionment, dispassion. Like, great, get involved in a romantic or whatever kind of relationship you want to get involved in. But have that disenchanted, disillusioned, dispassionate way of being in the relationship. So you're not in it because you expect it to satisfy you. You're in it because, for whatever reason, feels like a good thing to do. But we're not imagining the next meal or the next super perfect relationship or the next trip to a beautiful place or the next good set or the next whatever. Because fundamentally, the idea that a self can feed on that experience in a way to make it their own, take care of me, that there's something fundamentally wrong with that whole premise, that there's a somebody who's going to have some experience that will make that somebody okay which is our basic frame that you know it's been conditioned into us that we're a somebody looking for an experience that will make this somebody feel really okay and that's the hunger the thirsting the craving that drives most of our lives most of the time and the buddha suggests we take a look at that by first stabilizing awareness so that The looking, the awareness has real integrity. Our awareness isn't being driven by that same thirst because then the analysis, the discernment won't work because it will be superficial and it will be distorted. And we'll see what's impermanent, we'll see it as permanent. We'll see what's not capable of satisfying me as capable of satisfying me. What's not actually beautiful, we'll imagine it's beautiful. It's not that it's ugly, but it's not beautiful, in the way we might think. You might see the full moon. Maybe some of you saw the full moon the other night. You know, oh, beautiful. Is it really beautiful? <laughs> you know, it's just what it is. But but we can whip up that idea, and then when we do, when that's beautiful, then not full moon is what ugly see when you when you s- understand what raising something up does something else has to be lower when you raise up how beautiful the foam and then with the new snow so nice so i i mean we all know what we mean when we say oh that's beautiful but there's a cost to that right then there's then we're like oh vulnerable to what's ugly what's not beautiful so these are the distortions that come with self generally s- imagining things are permanent that they can provide satisfaction that they're beautiful that they're self when they're not permanent not capable of satisfying anybody not actually beautiful and not self Things are in nature, not self. So. And so it will be really interesting for us to, to talk about, you know, how to be a human being, a sexual being, in a messy world, where we're interested, you know, genetically programmed to survive, yet a bunch of other folks want to survive. So we're, there's this built-in competition or tension, at least around having and other people wanting to have what we want to have. Like I think I mentioned one of the first weeks, we think that um, because of self, self self-centeredness, there is craving, but it might be more useful to frame it differently as I think I mentioned this uh, couple people make this point both Andy Olensky and uh, Ajahn Tanisaro, Saro or Ajahn Jeff as he sometimes called this both uh, Western translators and practitioner scholars but that craving is here and out of craving comes the idea of self right it's Because craving is sort of desires woven into just the activity of life. You know, that's how life moves and takes care of itself. And what an amazing innovation as life does its dance for life, this activity, this impersonal process of life. Constructing the idea of it really matters because <laughs> it's me and mine, right? See, it's sort of like an innovation in the natural system of desire. An amoeba has a desire to move away from the saline solution toward, you know, water that doesn't have salt in it. I forget what the experiment was in high school, but you might remember, you know. You have got the little slide and they got these very simple single-cell organisms and you put a little salt water at one end and you watch the little organisms desire right to go away from the salt water. And there's a simple, really sweet little poem by the Japanese poet. Uh, let's see if I can put my hand on it here. Khan is the poet, the Zen poet, from the 1700s. The flower invites the butterfly with no mind. The butterfly visits the flower with no mind. The flower opens, the butterfly comes. The butterfly comes, the flower opens. I don't know others, others don't know me. By not knowing, we follow nature's course. So, you know, one way to just play with our practice is we're, we're really making peace with desire, but we're taking the self out of desire. And uh, Ajahn Simedo makes this point really clearly when he discusses the Four Noble Truths. There is this experience of dissatisfaction, stress, dukkha. There's a reason, there's a cause for it arising in our heart. Identification with desire, personalizing desire. So as a sexual being there will be times when desire will arise for most of us in that particular arena or around food or around safety, warmth, right? Desire will arise. And when we personalize the desire that naturally arises, then it's like supercharged because that was a creative innovation for craving or desire to realize that when you infuse desire with self-view, personality view, taking it personally, then the natural system is sort of supercharged. It's one thing to be walking down the road and a little hungry and seeing an apple in a tree And it's another thing to be walking down the road and the hunger arises, you know, moments before you see the apple in the tree and there's a mind that feels the hunger and thinks, I'm hungry, right? And that thought, I'm hungry, then probably leads to another thought and another thought and another thought all with that frame, that self-centered frame. Because then with that self-centered thinking, I'm hungry, and then I imagine, like, I should get something to eat. Why haven't I? Every time I think from the point of view that there's a me who's hungry, so now desire has a self associated with it, right? then that triggers the hunger again. So it amplifies the sense of self, the construction of self, Amplifies natural desire. That's why little things can get huge in our mind. I make the joke a lot like, if you got a little hangnail or you got a little piece of food in your tooth, can't wait till I get that out, got to get some floss. And I keep thinking, like, oh, it'll be so nice when I get that food out of my. And it can become as big as the universe, the me who's going to be satisfied when I get that damn food out of my tooth, right? Or whatever. Clip off the hangnail or feed my body or get home to bed. So there's a uh, supercharging because of the identity, because of the framing of desire in terms of a, a permanent me, individual, who will be happy. And the, the kind of activity of mental proliferation. Because with that mental proliferation, I can imagine not having it and be a little traumatized by that idea. I can imagine having it and getting a little sense hit. You right? When we imagine getting into bed or clipping the hangnail or whatever, we get a little bit of joy just in the imagining of it. So that just all solidifies and builds, amplifies the whole sense of self and the uh, desire becomes this monster, really. I think in the earlier Buddhist uh, discourse that I read, the killer is how he called it. Because it, it sort of uh, chews up the heart. I think it was Saita Upandita who had a line about craving, desire, cracks the heart. I think that's how he said it, it cracks the heart. But it really, you know, when we're really spinning with fear, with wanting to get rid of, wanting to get, it kind of eats the heart away. We, we do feel a little bit, well not a little bit, we feel beaten up by that activity So, just to finish this famous discourse, because the. I'll wait till I read it and then you'll see what happens at the end. So, the Buddha has just gone through with the five aggregates, you know, seeing that they're inconstant, that they're stressful, that does it make sense to consider themselves? No, it doesn't. And then he ends by saying, seeing thus, the well instructed disciple of the wise ones, grows disenchanted with the body, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with perception, disenchanted with mental fabrications or mental formations, disenchanted with consciousness. Disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, one is fully released. With full release, there is the knowledge fully released. One discerns that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There's nothing further for this world. That is what the Buddha said. Gratified, the group of five practitioners delighted at the Buddha's words. And while this explanation <coughs> was being given, the hearts of the five monks, through not clinging, were fully released from the fermentations. That's how um, Ajantani Saro translates, outflows sometimes, but released from the defilements, released from the torments of the heart, from greed, anger, and delusion. So often Nibbana, freedom, awakening, is talked about as the cessation of craving. Or in the way that I was mentioning Ajan Sumedra talks about it. The normal, ordinary desire that comes with being a living being, does that cease? No. You know, when we're cold, you would imagine an awakened or a really wise person when they're cold, there will be that natural desire to put a sweater on or to turn the heat up. Right? But what ceases is the identification with craving or the identification with desire. And so this is, again, like I was mentioning, you know, when we talk as a group at the end tonight and then as you practice this next week and then uh, next Monday when we have small groups, it would be really nice to share both places in your life where desire seems very personal and places in your life where over the years becoming a wiser Human being, that desire, there's just a lot more space around desire. It still arises in these places, but there's just a lot more space in the heart and mind when desire arises. The mind isn't confused by the desire that arises. Oh, yeah, this is that thing that arises when conditions are like this. You know, this is what it looks like. Okay. And we're not afraid of it. That's important because a lot, you know, when we've gotten ourselves into trouble because we've been identified with desire, had a lot of craving, and then we acted out in ways that maybe have caused ourselves and others harm, and then we want to sort of not do that again, so then we feel like we got to pretend like we don't have that desire. And then it just gets worse, right, because it It will leak out one way or another. You can't, as long as we're a living being, those desires are there for shelter, for belonging, for some sort of sexual expressions probably, much of our lives at least. It's just there. It's part of the territory of being a living being. So what do we do? And how to have an honest, and kind, but also very wise relationship with desire. What does that look like? What can we share with each other um, in terms of, you know, how that's shown up? So i want to read a few more things and then I'll open it up for discussion. If you didn't get a chance yet, I just sent it out this afternoon, but Gil Franzel has a very short article. It's just two pages, Anatta and the Four Noble Truths, and it covers some of this that I've been trying to bring up. Joseph Goldstein says, to awaken from illusion of taking concepts to be the reality so that we can live in clear awareness of how things actually are. So we'll hear ourselves thinking and maybe even saying, you know, I want this. I deserve this. Why can't I have this? So we don't have to be confused by that. In the same way a mother or father might hear their child saying, you know how kids are so great at being complete, like there's no political correctness about how they demonstrate craving. You know, there's just, especially at that age, three, four, five, you know, they could just like scream that this is what I want, this is what I deserve. But parents don't aren't necessarily confused by that craving. They realize, you know, oh, that's just that unbridled craving, you know. And uh, and the question is, you know, is it actually skillful for them to have what they want? And, you know, I don't know about you with your pet or pets, but it's sort of like I always feel like I need to teach my cat that lesson. Like, you, you get, some of your desires get to be quenched, But if you're really identified with it, I'm not going to quench it then because I don't want to reinforce your bullying. (laughs) Right? And it's it's like we sort of want this natural, like they're ready to eat when we're ready to feed them. You know, we're willing to pet them when we're ready, but not necessarily when they're ready. And how to sort of understand, like, oh, you can you can want to be petted, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen. You have to be okay. Like, it's okay for you to show me you want to eat, or show me you want to be petted, but you can't be identified with the desire, right? See, so you can't talk that way to a cat and you, and children, and also our own mind. This is what we're learning, but. Like, you have a right to crave, I mean, you have a right to have these desires, but whether this is the moment when that desire to be quenched actually isn't in my control. There are many dynamics. This may be a moment where you get to have the food that you want, or you get to have the sexual interaction that you want, or you get the entertainment that you want, but it may not be the moment. And see, if we're identified with the desire... Then there's going to be somebody who suffers. No, I want it now. But we don't have to be identified with the desire without repressing the desire. There's a way to not repress the desire and not be identified with it. And that's just a really interesting thing to look at. This is uh, from Joseph Goldstein's book, One Dharma. When we're not mindful, the strong force of emotions pulls us under and their powerful energies toss us about. Mindfulness is like wearing a life vest. The emotions still come, but we are protected from drowning in them. We no longer take them to be self or I, but rather experience them as part of the flowing current of life. There is a great sense of freedom When we don't identify so completely with every passing mind state and mood. This is, and then he quotes uh, uh, Rumi What I want is to leap out of this personality and then sit apart from that leaping. I lived, I have lived too long where I can be reached. And then a couple poems before opening it up. This is from, um, translated by translator, Red Pine, and it's uh, Stonehouse is the uh, poet from the 12th century in China. Four mountain postures. Walking in the mountains, unconsciously trudging along, grab a vine, climb another ridge. Standing in the mountains, how many dawns become dusk? Plant a tree, or plant a pine, a tree of growing shade. Sitting in the mountains, zigzag, yellow leaves fall, nobody comes, close the door, and make a big fire. Lying in the mountains, Kind wind enters the ears. For no good reason, beautiful dreams are blown apart. It's just a poetic image or words, you know, pointing to the dropping away of that frame of self. And just that, you know, it's kind of a that movement of distinction disenchantment and disillusionment and dispassion, it's a a dropping more and more into life. It's not so much a transcendence. It's like understanding how it all fits, that I fit, that this fits, that this all belongs, that as much suffering as there is, as much pain, as messy as it is, that the heart doesn't need to be heavy, doesn't need to be disturbed. Now, that should sound mysterious to us. And hopefully, we don't want to reject it out of hand. We want to really explore. So one more poem by Jane Hirschfeld. It was like this, you were happy, is what it's called. It was like this, you were happy... Then you were sad, then happy again, then not. It went on. You were innocent or you were guilty. Actions were taken or not. At times you spoke, at other times you were silent. Mostly it seems you were silent. What could you say? Now it's almost over. Like a lover, your life bends down and kisses your life. It does this not in forgiveness. Between you, there is nothing to forgive. But with the simple nod of a baker, at the moment he sees the bread is finished with transformation. Eating, too, is now a thing only for others. It doesn't matter what they will make of you or your days, they will be wrong. They will miss the wrong woman, miss the wrong man. All the stories they tell will be tales of their own invention. Your story was this, you were happy, then you were sad, you slept, you awakened, sometimes you ate roasted chestnuts, sometimes persimmons. And I like that poem. It, it has, for me, a little bit of the, that peace that the Buddha points to, the peace of not-self, the peace of anatta, of being a human being, being filled with desire. But there's this vast love, equanimity, peace. And that's the possibility the Buddha points to. So we have about fifteen minutes to talk as a larger group tonight. It would be nice to hear from a number of you, just your own reflections. Of course, questions are okay. But any sort of learnings along the way in regards to this topic we've been studying? What comes to mind? It's nice to say your name, if you don't mind. Yeah, wanna sit aside? Right here.
2: Hi, my name is Jen. Um Thanks for the, the talk, Mark. As you were talking, I was reflecting back on an experiment I did at the beginning of the year. I, I fasted, so I only ate between uh, 12 and 8, uh, just for health reasons, and also to experiment a little bit with this idea of, of desire and, and to watch myself. I'd never fasted before, and when I was, when I was doing it, I was you know, watching hunger come up, and I think because I had these boundaries, I was okay with letting the hunger pass, and I would watch it pass, and then and then I would notice that I would get excited for when I could eat, but then I would get a little sad because I knew at some point that would be over, and then I would be dissatisfied again because, that, like you said, the little zing is gone, Um and then and I I did fairly really well in, in keeping with it, but towards the end, you know, I was really getting excited to eating whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. And then so the past couple of weeks after the fasting period ended, I sort of let myself do whatever I wanted with food. In terms of if I had a craving at ten PM I would I would eat something. And I noticed how quickly um that ability to just watch the hunger and have the patience to let it fast it was like vanished. It was almost as if I I never had that muscle memory before and now I had just swung to the other end of the spectrum. Um, and now I'm wondering if it was because instead of saying, oh, hunger, you know, look at that, it was just straight to, I'm hungry, kind of what am I going to do
1: about that? Yeah. Yeah, and it's, we need to, 'Cause we can be dismissive of forms like going on a retreat and being forced to follow the schedule or going to monastery where they don't eat afternoon, right? Except for maybe sugar, you know, in their tea or something. But it's really good to explore because then we get to play with desire in a way when we take on particular forms. Thanks, Jen, for sharing that. Who'd like to go next?
3: Yeah, ever since we kind of started on this topic of uh, no self, I I'm just kind of reminded of the kind of the um the story of, you know, Richard Albert and becoming Ram Das and and all all the kind of L S D experiments and and how he kind of described this very direct moment where he had you know, taking a large amount of LSD and, and really directly realized the nature of no self. But with, like, he kind of saw his, all of his identities kind of falling apart. And kind of just he then described it as a um, psychological death. And so my, you know, my kind of curiosity about this kind of path of um, learning about no-self is that, you know, is it meant to have, like, heartbreak, essentially, or is it meant to be this kind of gentle process of, of
1: interest? Well, the path will be sort of unique to each person and how, you know, that mind comes into the moment over and over again, and let's the reality of the moment transform the understanding of that mind, right? So it will be unique. Each one will be a little bit unique. But remember, we're not really letting go of anything real. So there may be a grieving process in letting go of what's not real. You know, in the same way that growing up involves that a little bit, you know, the kind of I mean, even as ad- adults, we sometimes indulge in, and allow ourselves to sort of play with a fantasy that we sort of know isn't true. And then sometime, hopefully, you know, we we realize this isn't helpful to be indulging in this fantasy. And there, it hurts a little bit because we sort of had a bit of a magical sense that maybe it could be true, whatever that we were imagining. And even just in terms of the mystery of how things are going to play out in the wider world, politically, in terms of the environment, in terms of politics, in terms of whatever, our aging and dying process, you know, knowing that we don't know, knowing that we're not, that no one is in control, right, that it's a you know, it will be some kind of natural process. It sort of strips away a lot of magical thinking. You know, when we understand that, and initially it will, it can feel painful—that, uh, painful in a sobering kind of way. But we want to, es- especially, pay attention to how nice it is for the mind not to, to no longer have to dilute itself you know, to keep pretending or to keep patching up delusion. That, there's a lot of stress in lying. Just like in some of your relationships, I'm sure there have been some lies that have been maintained, you know, like in, ho- in families often. There's some things that, like, this person isn't supposed to know this about your sibling, you know. And uh, it's stressful when those things have to be maintained. Oh no! That's right. I can't say this about that to this person. So when we, when the mind, when the heart sobers up, there can be real grieving, real grieving. Even though what the heart's letting go of was never real, the heart was holding it, grasping it, and now it realizes, it, realizes to some degree that it doesn't make sense to do that, and that letting go can hurt. But it also feels good not to hold something that wasn't what it appeared to be or wasn't what we thought it was, to be putting it down. There's a kind of healing when the mind comes, becomes more grounded in the way that it actually is. There's a very particular flavor, the Buddha calls it, the taste of freedom. And he talks about this taste as being unforgettable. And that's what we want to pay attention to not get so see if we if the mind fixates on the grieving of letting go of our the mind's delusions <clears throat> then we get nostalgic and a little nihilistic even you know nostalgic for delusion <laughs> but what we want to do is we want to tune into how right how good how healing it is to come into alignment, to put down the load. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, let's go to Zinzele and then John. Um,
4: I'm Zinsule. Um, I guess one of the things I've been learning is that, like, relationships with people is one of the ways in which the force gets, the self gets reinforced. And um and like so like kinda kinda st- taking a step back from relationships and understanding that they come and they arise and they pass away like any other has been kinda liberating. Um, but then when you get entangled in relationships, that's when, at least for me, I start to suffer. Um, because you get caught up in the force of personalities and my personalities and then the other people's personalities. But one of the thing's I'm realizing is that like like cultivating like friendliness and well really cultivating unconditional friendliness is a way to kinda not get so entangled tangled because it loosens like like the heart a little bit, but that's not a usual practice in this in this culture. And so it can cause problems. And then like because like I'm a mother, like like a fear of losing my children it's like that's ever-present. And so it's like, yeah, so the self just gets reinforced. That's pretty much it.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. But one thing I have noticed, especially in my relationship with my spouse, is uh, that that takes away a little bit of the stickiness of our, you know, our dynamic that has a lot of self in it is i'm i'm getting quicker at seeing both winds and my sort of the roles that we play the hats that we wear in different dynamics that we have <coughs> as a kind of caricature <coughs> of myself lo- like a role that this body mind plays and and so i'm able to recognize it and and it just when i see it as the oh, that particular oppor oh, me or that particular dominating me or that particular and see when and the different sort of hats that her personality puts on and wears it just it just helps like even <clears throat> when we you know look at a, a leader a politician a, the president or somebody that you know is pushing your buttons but to see them as a caricature you know, th- there's somebody playing a role, and not even necessarily playing it well, but there, d- and there, there's sort of certain forces that have come together to make this comic figure of Mark in this way and Mark in that way, and it just helps me hold myself and I think hold others more lightly. You know how it is, like you, you, you go to some situ in some situations. You're very much like when you go see the doctor or you go see your car mechanic, and you're very much like this is in this realm, this person's the boss, and I'm the one who doesn't have a clue, you know. And so we play that role of being the sort of submissive, like, tell me what to do, you know. And other roles, we, we're the sort of dominant one, and we're supposed to kind of, even if we don't feel like it in that moment, it's sort of the moment is sort of calling on us to be the grown up, to be the boss, and to and then all these other sort of roles that oh i'm supposed to be cool in this moment or i'm the not cool one and you know and the younger people are the cool people here and then I, well can i play the older man role if that's you know the old white guy you know can i play that role am i willing to sort of own that and to me that has a lot of the anatta flavor to it is sort of understanding these sort of hats that just Come my way. No choice about him really in, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, thanks, Ezra. Wanna pass it over to John? John, you get the last words? Thank you.
0: Uh thanks, Mark, for your for your talk and for the questions. Um so um I like to reach to other traditions and see how they're compared or similar to this one. And so um there was this he was i can't remember his first name but bishop butler he was a 17th century um anglican bishop who was also a philosopher and raging through the country sort of raging was this discussion of whether we're just self-interested or not and he was arguing against it and one of the arguments was well you know hunger is just a desire for self-interest and his reply was no it's just hunger, and they had made this wonderful statement that I thought was so cool. Everything is what it is, and not some other thing,
1: yeah, and it seems to be charming. applying
0: it seems to be applying to what you're talking about desire, yeah, okay, so that's hunger, that's a sexual need, but that's all it is. Yeah. Don't make a story about anything else like a you that has to. Satisfy that, and I guess I'm wondering if I'm on the right track.
1: I think so, yeah. And the question we can ask ourselves is, what's the mind doing with this? What is the mind making up around this desire? Does it need to make up anything around it, or can it be what it is? Oh, this is what it is. And when we, when it something feels really big and complicated, we can actually trace that back. Well, what's underneath that? What's and we'll get back. Oh, I'm just a little cold, <laughs> you know, or I'm just a little hungry, or I, I'm not feeling like I belong. There's this simple desire to want to be included. Okay, well, what is what can be done about that? That that doesn't cause harm for myself or anybody, right? Because there's nothing wrong as a living being to fulfill desire. We just want to be clear whether I'm causing myself and others harm, because that always comes back to bite us. Whether we want to or not, we care about whether it causes ourselves or others harm. It, it makes, leaves an impression. Yeah, thanks, John, for sharing that. Let's let go of the words for just a few seconds. Sit. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Nice to be with everybody tonight. Thanks for coming.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
1: Thank you for listening.